What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And on the line with us is Professor Noam Chomsky. He's currently the Laureate Professor of Linguistics at the University of Arizona, previously at MIT, the Institute Professor of Linguistics Emeritus, author of numerous books, including Optimism Over Despair on Capitalism, Empire, and Social Change. His latest project is authoring a chapter in the book Turnout, Mobilizing Voters in an Emergency. Chomsky.info is his website. And Professor Chomsky, welcome to our program. First of all, thanks so much for joining us today. I hope all is well with you. Yeah, it's fine. Thank you. I'm curious your thoughts on the movement toward fascism in the United States. If you want to share with us your understanding of an operational definition of fascism and to what extent our overall political systems and our two major political parties are moving in that direction and why. Well, first of all, it's not the two political parties. The Democrats are pretty much what they used to be. They're split between kind of a Clintonite establishment, which is not very different from what used to be called moderate Republicans, and a popular base, which is much of it under the Sanders umbrella, which is moving well to the left. The Republicans have gone way off the spectrum. They're now ranked in international rankings with some of the uh, European parties that have neo-fascist origins. And if even the mainstream commentators describe them as a radical insurgency, which has abandoned parliamentary politics, this has become very extreme under Trump, but it's been going on for some time. The term fascism, I think, is thrown around much too loosely. There are many symptoms that are common to what we saw in the fascist states, like resort to violence, calling in troops to repress protesters, things like that. But it's not fascism. I mean, it does too much credit to Trump to call him an incipient fascist. Fascism was an ideology, a conception, a way to organize society. This is way beyond his pay grade. He's a tin-pot dictator trying to maintain control for himself 
and for the groups that he serves with passion and dedication, ultra-wealth and corporate power. Fascism was very different. Fascism meant that the powerful state, under the control of the dominant party and the maximal leader, would control all of society, including the business world. They would be under the control of the maximum leader and his party with brown shirts and black shirts in the streets enforcing it. That's not our system. We're nowhere near that. In fact, we're closer to the opposite, where the business world basically pretty much controls the government. So there are very ugly and dangerous signs, but I think they should be regarded as like kind of what's like happening in a small third world neo-colony where there's a harsh dictator, a country who, which has a military coup of a couple of years and is falling apart. That's not fascism. Of course, the United States does have resilient institutions which can overcome this. It's a phenomenon that's taking place. It doesn't have to prevail. And so when uh, Trump called in uh, federal troops to impose his rule over Washington and dominate the protesters with uh, fierce, vicious dogs and so on, he tried, but he failed. The Pentagon wouldn't accept it and withdrew the troops. In the case of Portland, I think he realized he can't use federal troops. The military won't agree with it. So he used paramilitaries. The Border Patrol, which functions not far from where I live in Tucson, which is basically a lawless paramilitary militia, do what they like in the border areas. and They can go wild in Portland, too, but they had to be withdrawn. So these are very dangerous signs, and there are more things to worry about. Uh, Trump's latest uh, Pentagon appointment, which he made by an executive order, top official in the Pentagon, couldn't pass congressional reviews, so he just appointed it. That's very much like his purge of the executive branch. If inspector generals are coming too close to investigating his swamp, that his swamp that he's created in Washington, then fire them all. And the Senate Republicans uh, are cowed. They don't raise a word of protest. Charles Grassley made a mild protest, and that was about it. These are dangerous signs, and we should be wary of them. But they are not in a situation where they can get out of control. We're not in Germany in 1932. Where did this, in your opinion, Professor Chomsky, begin? Was this the logical outgrowth of the Powell memo or out of the Supreme Court's Buckley and Bellotti decisions that basically said it's okay to own and bribe politicians, it's now legal? Or was this the consequence of the Nixon administration? Or is this all the child of Reaganism? We've seen this kind of authoritarianism floating around in American society, you know, throughout our history, certainly, but in the modern era. Yeah. Well, we've gone through 40 years of a neoliberal assault on the society, and in fact, on much of the world. It began with late Carter, took off under Reagan. The effects are very 
clear and explicit. And it was pretty obvious it was going to happen. The system has been designed. There's no time to go through the details, but it's been designed so that there's tremendous accumulation of wealth in a tiny percentage of the population. 0.1% of the population has 20% of the wealth. It's about twice as much as before Reagan. For the general population, it's been mostly stagnation or decline. Majority of the population can barely get by from paycheck to paycheck. The corporate power has greatly increased. There's been a process of monopolization of the society across the board. It's part of the whole system. Very damaging to consumers. Very beneficial to the corporate sector, the top of the corporate sector and the ultra-rich. It's left people angry, frustrated, resentful, contemptuous of authority. It's a fertile ground for demigods to come and say, I'll save you. And we've seen this happening here, Brazil, Turkey, Hungary, India. Here is the most important. But it can be controlled. Meanwhile, there are popular forces developing of a kind... Let's, let's talk about that on the other side of this break. We will be right back with yeah. Professor Noam Chomsky. This is the Tom Hartman Program. We're talking with Professor Noam Chomsky, his uh, latest project, author in a chapter in the book, Turnout, Mobilizing Voters in an Emergency, his previous book, Optimism Over Despair. I'd like to continue the conversation. Professor Chomsky, you said that there are, are ways to fight back, that we have institutions that have some resilience relative to this. What? How? Well, first of all, the basic institutions are still functioning. Trump is trying to destroy them. And the Republican Party, if it's, you want to call it a party anymore, is basically going along. But there's a chance to overcome this. Furthermore, let's not overlook the real politics that's taking place in the streets. Uh, take a look at what's happening in the country. Uh, the Black Lives Matter protests are the uh, largest uh, mass social force that's developed in probably in American history very rapidly. Enormous popular support. Uh, two-thirds of the public supports them. That's way beyond the support that Martin Luther King had at the peak of his popularity. And they're not, and they're, it's, it's recent, it's just coalescing. Programs are being formed. Some of them go deep into institutional crises of the society uh, with uh, engagement, participation, commitment, a serious attention to what has to be done, uh, unwillingness to be diverted. This could turn into a major popular force connecting with the groups that have coalesced under the um, Sanders umbrella, others that have developed the environmental groups and others. That's a period of uh, enormous ferment, lots of options for constructive and positive change, just 
to give one example of many, the Sunrise Movement, which has been at the forefront of environmental activism, uh, pretty much succeeded in getting the Democratic Party campaign to pick the most significant program they've ever taken on global warming, a $2 trillion commitment to devote resource to the problem, plan to move net zero emissions forward by over a decade. All of this is important. This continues. It can create a new America based on a Green New Deal, which will create a new economy, very beneficial to the general population and to saving the world from disaster. All of these options are open to us. Yes, there's a wrecker in the White House who wants to destroy everything and save himself and these forces he serves, those that have benefited from the neoliberal assault. There are counterforces, and it's a question. There's it's kind of class struggle on a major scale and serious chances for victory. Remarkable. We're talking with Professor Noam Chomsky. His most recent book, or contribution to a book, this is Turnout, Mobilizing Voters in an Emergency. Prior to that, 2017, Optimism Over Despair on Capitalism, Empire, and Social Change. Laureate Professor of Linguistics at the University of Arizona, previously at MIT. We'll be right back. The Hartman Report is a free daily podcast, seven days a week, and you can find our entire three-hour podcast over at TomHartman.com. We're talking with Professor Noam Chomsky, his uh, most recent project, the book Turnout, Mobilizing Voters in an Emergency, his previous book, Optimism Over Despair, which is a really great title. Professor Chomsky, you are a professor of linguistics. This is your background. And I'm wondering your thoughts on the way that authoritarians both in the Republican Party, in the political structure in the United States, and in the media. I'm thinking Fox News and right-wing hate radio, but I think it probably goes beyond that. The way that authoritarians are using language as part of their, their systematic attack, essentially, on American democracy. Well, you don't have to be a linguist to see this, and linguistics tells you. It's just ordinary common sense. So take the Trump campaign. He's now focusing on the radical left revolutionaries who are planning to take over the country, to destroy everything we have, to turn it into a, you know, some extremist a communist dictatorship. Now, this is use of language, if you like, but it's that's the kind of thing you heard from Joe McCarthy. From uh, let's go back to my childhood. Father Coughlin, the anti-Semitic racist, it was very popular, much other things through history. Nothing about language. What we should do is just look at the facts that are developing. So take the radical left uh, Trump is trying to energize his base about. Uh, what is it exactly? Is it Bernie Sanders? Uh, take a look at Sanders' main programs. Universal health care. A free higher education. Can you think of another country that has 
universal health care? Can you think of one that doesn't have it? What about free higher education? It's found in rich countries like Germany, Finland, France, elsewhere, poor countries like Mexico, almost everywhere. So what Sanders is saying, let's try to rise to the level of other countries. That's radical and revolutionary. Quite an insult to the United States to claim that. Uh, He's calling for basically New Deal-style policies of a social democratic character, which most of the country supports. The ultra-rich, the corporate sector, the financial sector, they don't like it. And they shouldn't be permitted to rule the country. We have it within our power to prevent that easily. These are developments that have taken place primarily during the neoliberal era. Of course, they have roots beyond, which can be reversed, overcome, and turned in quite different directions. It's all within our power. The corporate sector is well aware of the fragility of their control. We should be aware of it, too. It depends on consent, and the consent can be withdrawn. I'm sure you've seen that the statements by a couple hundred corporate executives saying to the public, we realize we've done wrong, we have to change course, from now on we're going to be dedicated humanists concerned with your welfare, so put your trust in us. That's a sign of how scared they are. Every January, there's a meeting of people who modestly call themselves the masters of the universe in Davos, Switzerland, a ski resort in Switzerland, wealthy CEOs, uh, top media figures, uh, people from the entertainment industry congratulating each other on how wonderful they are and so on. This last January was different. The theme last January was what I just described. We have to recognize that we've done things that are harming the public and are now harming us. And we have to tell the general public that we're sorry for the mistakes we've carried out. We've now changed. You can now put your trust in us. Uh, We'll take care of you. Now, this is something we've heard before. In the 1950s, the line was that we're moving towards what were called soulful corporations. Not corporations that are not committed to greed, but are soulful, working for the benefit of humanity. Okay, we've had uh, half a century or more to figure out how that message turned out. Now we're hearing it again. And it's a sign of the recognition that the control and domination is fragile. It can be taken, consent can be removed. We have the possibility of moving towards a far more constructive, benign future, which will deal with the existential crises that we face and will create a society that's based on mutual support, concern for people's needs, development for progress, not profit. All of this is possible. 
Professor Chomsky, thank you so much for dropping by. It's been great talking with you, and, and I appreciate you sharing your time with us. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Professor Noam Chomsky, uh, his latest project is the book Turnout, Mobilizing Voters in an Emergency. Prior to that, Optimism Over Despair on Capitalism, Empire, and Social Change. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment. It's the Tom Hartman program, occupying the media three hours a day, five days a week, right here. Stick around. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm-mm-mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back. Get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today.
Right now on the line with us is Stephen Moore, the White House Economic Recovery Task Force and chairman of FreedomWorks Task Force on Economic Revival. I get their emails on a regular basis saying, reopen the economy. The websites for Stephen Moore, committee to unleash prosperity.com and freedomworks.org. And of course, you can tweet him at Stephen Moore with an E on the end. Stephen, welcome back to the program. And thanks for joining us. In this time when the Social Security Trust Fund last year paid out over a trillion dollars and only received $944 billion in revenue, so it's declining, and the Medicare Trust Fund, according to the 2020 Medicare Trustee Report, the insurance trust fund will be exhausted, depleted in six years, in 2026. Why are you and Donald Trump proposing to cut the revenue to Social Security and Medicare? I don't get it. Hey, Tom. Well, good to be with you. We want to revive this economy, get money back into the hands of people. As you know, that the payroll tax is the number one tax that middle-income people pay. We are in an economic emergency. And now is a good time to get that money right back into the pockets of the workers across America. Very popular with people, by the way. People love the idea of of seeing a suspension of that tax. It's a much better way to help people than, you know, I think Nancy Pelosi wants $500 billion for state and local governments and, uh, you know, $100 billion for school districts that aren't going to open up. Why not give the money right back to the people? By the way, we would reimburse the trust fund, the Social Security payroll and Medicare trust funds with government bonds which is how the system is funded right now. The system is funded right now with a payroll tax. That payroll tax is then invested in bonds. Are you suggesting that for every dollar that I don't have to pay in payroll taxes, you're going to have, you're going to ask Congress to appropriate that money from the general fund and move it into the Social Security Trust Fund? Is that specifically what you're saying? Or is this some sort of semantic uh, sleight of hand? Well, the trust fund, as you know, is really a kind of fiction as it is. I mean, the trust fund, Medicare, the trust fund is a thing for a long time. I, all we're saying is it's got a trillion dollar surplus. We want to so all we want to do is say that guarantee, just like Barack Obama did this ten years ago. Remember when he cut the payroll tax? He said we will hold the trust funds harmless. We're not cutting anyone's benefits. You can go back and read what Barack Obama and Nancy Pelosi said about this a decade ago. That they said this was a big, big. Right, Congress appropriated money to put into the trust fund, but but the president doesn't have the authority to do that. If if I'm reading this correctly, you're suggesting that Congress doesn't even need to be consulted in this this article i've got the president needs to pull it in and run there's a legal way to do that he should declare a national emergency economic emergency and announce that the irs will immediately stop collecting the payroll tax i thought that took congress and that's how barack obama did it congress did that as part of the economic stimulus act yeah so by the way it'd be great why wouldn't congress do this i mean the pelosi for some because the democrats control the house and they don't want to destroy social security or medicare no 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 but the time the Democrats did this 10 years ago. Here's the problem that Nancy Pelosi has. 10 years ago, Nancy Pelosi, when, 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 uh, when Obama cut the payroll tax, she said, this is the greatest victory for 150 million working Americans. It's going to be a stimulus for the economy. It's going to help pump up the incomes of middle-class Americans. And now she's saying she doesn't want to do well, it. Well, that's because you had full employment then. Or something close to it. Now you've got 25 million people who are unemployed who aren't paying the payroll tax. What's wrong with simply giving $600 a week to all the unemployed Americans? Because, Tom, I mean, I'm I'm glad you... And raising the minimum wage. (laughs) So this is a total different philosophical orientation between you and me and the left and the right. 
You want to keep giving money to unemployed people. We want to give money to people who actually are working. The nurses, the high doctors, the sanitation workers. People who are actually working are already getting money. It's called wages. Why not argue? Instead of arguing to cut their Social Security taxes, why not argue, which is about 6%, why not argue for a 6% increase in the minimum wage? Well, because the minimum wage destroys jobs, because you're going to put people on an unemployment line if you do that. Why not do this? By the way, this gives every single minimum wage worker in America, every minute, from California to Maine, every single minimum wage worker would get a 7.5% pay raise. Why would At the expense of Social Security. No, it doesn't. This is security. No, you say, yes, we're going to make them whole. We're going to put that money back in. But we all know this is the camel's nose under the tent. You know, you guys have been trying to destroy Social Security ever since it was passed in 1935. You hate Social Security and Medicare. Everybody knows that. That's the Republican Party's official position. Tom, you've got a problem there because Barack Obama did it 10 years ago. And nobody... That doesn't make it right. And that was during a time of full employment. Yes, if you want to immediately flush a short-term jolt of cash into the economy, that's one way to do it. Another way to do it is to give everybody who's unemployed, now that you've got 25 million unemployed people, Obama gave, what, maybe 100 million unemployed people an extra 6%. Now you can give 25 million people an extra $600 a week. That's going to be a huge boost to the economy. It is so far. I mean, the only reason the economy has limped along as well as it has is that people can still afford to order food on Grubhub. So I just want to get this right. You're saying paying people twice as much money for not working as working is a stimulus for the economy? I mean, come on. If somebody is making twice as much, then they're working for crap wages. Every American who's going to be unemployed. Why would people, how is that fair to the construction worker who's working? He comes home, the guy sitting next door who doesn't, who isn't working gets twice as much money as he does. I guarantee you the the construction worker is making more than the person on unemployment, even if the person on unemployment is making 600 bucks a week. Okay, well, if that's the case, then our construction workers are radically underpaid. Construction work is more dangerous than being a cop. And cops are making 70, 80, 80,000 bucks a year. They start here in Portland at $60,000 a year. And construction work is more dangerous than being a police officer. I mean, you know, we have a, we, we have a horrible problem. Look, I want to raise the take-home pay of every single worker in America, even if they make the minimum wage, and you say you're against it. I mean, I don't understand why you're against a six and a half percent. I'm saying give people the right to unionize. Give people the right to unionize. We had the fastest growing middle class in the history of the world from 1940 to 1980 when Reaganomics kicked in and you guys got your way. Since then, the middle class has collapsed. It's been totally flat and in many cases it's gone down. Individual wages have gone down, even though household wages have gone up. And this is purely the result of this, these massive tax cuts that you're continuing to promote. Tax cuts aren't the solution. Let people unionize and they will negotiate decent wages. But you guys are fighting Wait, unions we, left and right. We had th- a third of the American like workforce we, unionized when Reagan came into office. Now it's 6%. So even every union worker in America, every if you're listening to the show and you're a union worker, under the plan that I'm talking about, Donald Trump is talking about, we're going to put give you a 7.5% pay raise. <laughs> I don't understand why anybody would... Well, it's not a pay raise. It's... It's a tax cut. It's, a it's not a pay raise. It's a tax cut. But, well, if you're going to make it permanent, I guess it's a pay raise. It totally kills Social Security. I get it. Okay, oh, well. Stephen Moore. Stephen, <laughs> thanks for dropping by. It's always great talking Thank with you. you. White House Thank Economic you. Recovery Task Force.
Thank you, Stephen. Committee to UnleashProsperity.com and FreedomWorks.org. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And, of course, you know, WhiteHouse.gov. <laughs> Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure, how it holds us back, propels us forward, and ultimately shapes our lives. Each week, he'll chat with guests like Ben Stiller, Bette Midler, and more about how our perceived failures have actually been our biggest catalysts for growth, revelation, and even healing. Through these conversations, he hopes listeners can learn how to embrace the opportunity of failure and fail better together. Fail Better is out now wherever you get your podcasts. Today we're reading from The Truth About Social Security, the founder's words refute revisionist history, zombie lies, and common misunderstandings by Nancy J. Altman. This is from chapter 5, page 239. It's titled, In the Immortal Words of Yogi Berra, this is Deja Vu all over again. 
The last chapter ended with a call to expand Social Security, consistent with the Founders' vision. Whether to increase or decrease Social Security's modest benefits, whether to add new protections or take current protections away, and whether to retain or change Social Security's fundamental structure are questions of values and collective choice. An overwhelming majority of Americans have always supported Social Security, valuing the basic security it provides by pooling risk. They understand that there are some undertakings that the government does better than the private sector. Security, both physical and economic, is one of them. To promote economic security in this world, and indeed around the world, government-sponsored insurance has proven to be extremely effective. Indeed, more than 170 countries have enacted their own version of Social Security. Americans appreciate that our Social Security system's benefits are earned and that work is a condition of their receipt. Indeed, the values that underlie Social Security are basic American values. Reward for work, individual responsibility, shared participation, risk and benefit, responsible, prudent financing, and protection of our families. Those of us who want to see Social Security remain strong and see its modest but vital benefits expanded can triumph as long as we are engaged and informed. To win, we must be vigilant, hypersensitive to the goals and tactics that those who would like to see our Social Security system dismantled brick by brick. Though opponents' tactics have changed somewhat over time, their goal has been constant. This chapter will analyze in detail both the goals and tactics of opponents throughout Social Security's history, so supporters of Social Security are well-informed and armed. A small minority has always believed that all but the neediest individuals should be completely on their own and has long fought a campaign against Social Security. People holding those views want, as lobbyist Grover Norquist vividly remarked, quote, to shrink government to the size where we can drown it in the bathtub. Those who oppose Social Security have always been a tiny fraction of Americans, but they have an oversized influence because they are generally people of great wealth. President Eisenhower astutely explained in a November 8, 1954 letter he wrote to his brother just who these opponents of Social Security are and what he thought of them. Quote, should any political party attempt to abolish Social Security and unemployment insurance, you would not hear of that party again in our political history. There is a tiny splinter group, of course, that believes you can do these things. Among them are H.L. Hunt, you possibly know his background, and a few other Texas oil millionaires, and an occasional politician or businessman from other areas. Their number is negligible, and they are stupid. End of quote from Dwight Eisenhower. Republican Dwight Eisenhower. Some members of that tiny splinter group are libertarians who want to be free of all constraint. Others are wealthy individuals who don't believe they need to pool their risk because they are wealthy enough to self-insure, and they don't want the cost associated with a collective program of insurance. Still others are unenlightened business people who define their self-interest narrowly with no consideration for the common good and want to increase their profits and wealth by reducing the cost of mandatory contributions to government. And others are people who make their living from Wall Street and recognize that if people were not receiving Social Security, they would purchase more stocks, bonds, annuities, and other financial interests in the private market in an effort to protect their economic security. What unites all of these opponents is the desire to undo universal government-sponsored insurance in the form of Social Security and Medicare. People who share these views sought to defeat Social Security when it was first proposed, and when that proved unsuccessful to change its basic structure and function as described below. The history of Social Security shows a continuous chain of opposition, but with different actors over time, of course. Interestingly, in some cases, the most prominent opponents over time have been related. The progeny of some of the wealthy opponents in the 1930s are still fighting Social Security today. The grandfather of President George W. Bush, who sought to radically transform Social Security in 2005, 
was a man named Prescott Bush, a contemporary of President Roosevelt. He once remarked of Roosevelt, quote, the only man I truly hated lies buried in Hyde Park, end quote. Similarly, the father of one of the highly ideological Koch brothers, Charles and David, who have financed efforts aimed at dismantling Social Security, was a Texas newspaper publisher who used that position to rail against Social Security and other New Deal programs. Opponents and supporters have not fallen neatly into political party affiliation. Among the electorate, Republicans, Democrats, and Independents alike have always supported Social Security because they've understood how important it is to their economic security and to our nation. In addition, once Social Security was established, some Republican leaders like President Eisenhower have supported the program, at least in limited foundational size. In recent years, though, the Republican Party has endorsed proposals to dismantle Social Security, despite the claim made by virtually all Republican politicians that they support it. Moreover, as the mistaken view of Social Security as a drain on the federal budget and economy gained traction in the last few decades, some Democratic leaders have, perhaps unwittingly, pushed for changes that would undermine and weaken Social Security's protection as well. Nevertheless, Though not all Democrats have supported Social Security, nor all Republicans opposed it, support for Social Security over its history has largely come from Democrats, opposition from Republicans. The truth about Social Security. Carl in Fairland, Texas. Hey, Carl, thanks for watching us on Free Speech TV. What's on your mind? Well, the President of the United States wanted every teacher in this country to all be armed, right, to protect the children, but You're yet right. he won't give them the resources to protect the children from this virus and the, the partners right. that they live with, and it disgusts me. That's all I've got to say, Tom. Okay, well, thank you, Carl. You, you said it well, and to Carl's point, you know, and I think this is an important one, Israel, here we go, it's in the New York Times, on the front page, in fact, when COVID subsided, Israel reopened its schools. It didn't go well. This is Isabel Kirshner and Pam Bullock. As the United States and other countries anxiously consider how to reopen schools, Israel, one of the first countries to do so, illustrates the dangers. The Israeli government invited the entire student body back in late May. Within days, infections were reported at a Jerusalem high school, which quickly mushroomed into the largest outbreak in a single school in Israel, possibly, possibly the largest outbreak in a single school in the world. The virus rippled out to the students' homes and then to other schools and other neighborhoods, ultimately infected, infecting hundreds of students, teachers, and relatives. Other outbreaks forced hundreds of schools to close. Across the country, tens of thousands of students and teachers were quarantined. Israel's advice for other countries? They definitely should not do what we have done, says Ellie Waxman, a professor at the Weizmann Institute of Science and chairman of the team advising Israel's National Security Council on the pandemic. Quote, speaking of Israel's experiment with reopening their schools, it was a major failure. And this is, this is a country that had largely squashed the virus. We've had a couple of callers from Israel in the last few weeks talking about how, well, life seems to be getting back to normal. I mean, people are wearing masks and stuff, but, you know, we're reopening restaurants and things, and the schools are reopening. Well, apparently not so fast, right? They thought they had it under control. And this is popping up, by the way, in countries, you know, South Korea, the entire country in the neighborhood of 300 deaths. Total! Right? We're at 155,000. There are 51 million people. 
you know, one-sixth the size of the United States, they have 300 deaths. But now they're saying, oh, wait a minute, we're starting to get a little, you know, the hot spots are popping back up. This virus is insanely tenacious. It's insanely strong. It's very, very potent. And it's something that we're going to have to deal with and live with for a long, long time. And, but I guess, you know, the larger question is, are you willing to have your Social Security? Are you willing to see... Are you willing to let conservatives cut off the lifeblood of Social Security in the name of the pandemic? Tom Hartman here. My new book, The War on Voting, it should be titled The Republican War on Voting, which is what it really is, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back. It is the third in the series, the Hidden History series. The first was Guns in the Second Amendment. The second was the Supreme Court, the Betrayal of America. You can check it all out at TomHartman.com. All the information is there. Tom Hartman here with you. Uh, so number one, are you willing to see the revenue source, that is payroll taxes, for Social Security and Medicare cut in the name of the pandemic, do you think it'll help? Do you agree with Stephen Moore? If so, hey, call me. I'd love to talk to you. Number two, I have a completely separate question that I wanted to lay on you. I've been thinking about this for a long time. In fact, first I was thinking of it in the context of, you know, we need to talk about this on the radio and I should talk about it. You maybe write an op-ed for, uh, you know, alternate raw story and common dreams. And by the way, a piece up today on buzzflash.com and over at commondreams.org. And then I started thinking, maybe I should even write a book about this. You know, a small book, but, you know, the hidden history of change in America. How America has transformed itself in the face of technological innovation. For example, the invention of the cotton gin. It was right tail end of the revolutionary era, just before the election of 1800. And by 1820, the cotton gin, a cotton gin could clean as much cotton as 50 enslaved individuals. And so what happened was the invention of the cotton gin caused the South to completely change. It went from a whole bunch of small farms and plantations powered by slaves, by enslaved people. It went from that to an oligarchy where the large plantations started buying up all the plantations around them because they could afford to buy a cotton gin. And by 1820, an oligarchic police state had completely taken over the South. In fact, I write about this in my book that's coming out in the spring, The Hidden History of Oligarchy. That was America's first actual seizure of, in this case, you know, a dozen states, more or less, by oligarchs using a police state. And you know, the small farmers just got wiped out, the small cotton farmers. And got replaced by these giant plantations, sometimes 1,000, 5,000, 10,000 acres, and very, very wealthy plantation owners. This is from 1820 to 1860. And they took over all the political power and everything else. So we saw in that example how the invention of one small thing, one technological change, produced a massive change in culture in the United States that led to a civil war. Then in the late 1800s, 100 years later, in the 1890s, I believe it was in the 1870s that Mr. Diesel invention, invented the diesel engine. And by the 1890s, we started getting diesel powered and then later gasoline and uh, alcohol powered automobiles. Henry Ford's big thing. So by 1910, the era from 1910 to 1920, 
was basically the decade. I mean, it literally was that fast. I mean, you could argue it was two decades, 1900 to 1920. But, it, you know, in, by 1910, there were over 100 different car companies in America. 100 of them. By 1930, we were down to 10 or 15, just a few. And, of course, by the 1960s, we were down to the big three. Because they, you know, they bought up all the competition. But the point is, we went from being powered by horses to being powered by cars in 20 or 30 years, from 1890 to 1920. And during that period of time, there was this major upheaval in America. Suddenly, people, suburbs started to happen because people could drive into town. Streets changed. Streets and towns used to be dirt so that it would absorb the urine from the horses. When the horses didn't, weren't there anymore, they started paving the streets because it was better for cars. The buggy whip manufacturers went out of business, entire industries, you know, making carts, the horse-drawn carts, and making the leatherware that the horses wear, and bits and bridles and all, all went out of business. So we saw a major technological change that produced an economic and a cultural change. Cars became a cultural thing, and that led us, you know, 30 years later in the 1950s to Route 66 and Martin Milner and, and you know, all that kind of stuff. So the question that I have, how is the coronavirus going to change America going forward? I don't believe that this is going to be like polio, where we come up with a vaccine that's 99.5% effective, and we universally vaccinate the country, and the virus just vanishes. By the way, polio hasn't entirely vanished, but becomes a non-factor, largely speaking. I don't believe that's going to happen. If it does, great. And this conversation was just an intellectual exercise. But if it does happen like that, it's going to be a couple of years down the road. And so we've got a couple of years where America has to basically readjust itself and recalibrate itself to this new reality. So how are things going to change? How are things like dating, right? I've seen Match.com ads on TV where people are doing Zoom calls with each other as a date. How is that going to change? How are our restaurants going to change? There's a fascinating piece in the New York Times a while ago about how high-end restaurants in Chicago and New York are actually doing well, maybe not Chicago, but New York and there was one other city, are doing well because high-end restaurants have always had people sitting far apart from each other so that billionaires can have quiet conversations. I'm talking about restaurants where a dinner is 200 bucks. You know, the maitre d' seats you and nobody comes around and hassles you. This is not the Waffle House, right? They're not coming by with the ever-filled coffee. When you want a waiter, you basically have to raise your hand. Those kinds of restaurants, and even regular restaurants, are starting to raise their price and decrease in their seating density. What other economic opportunities? There's a whole new industry making masks and making fashion masks. I just got one with FDR painted on the front of it. And thank, a tip of the hat and thanks to the caller who, who told me about this. Crematoriums are probably going to be a growth industry. New airlines and hotels. I could see the airline industry going to two seats with a, with a gap in the middle in coach and one seat on each side of the aisle in first class and doubling their prices or raising their prices by 30 or 40 percent. And that becoming the new normal. New hotels, new HVAC systems that, that have uh, ultraviolet lights in it. Vacations are going to change. Telehealth is a new normal. to the Tom Hartman program. So help me write my book. What are the things that you're seeing that you think will be the new, these are, you know, the new trends that are probably going to be established. 
In this week's science revolution, will the virus stop the Trump cult the way defeat in World War II stopped the fascist cult? Dr. Michael Mann is with us on how the Trump administration boosts deregulation by undervaluing the impacts of climate change. Tony Corvo drops by about a new rule. Americans are now eating chickens with cancer. Ew, is that healthy? He'll let you know. Jenny Harbine tells us about a new lawsuit to stop Trump from handing public land to coal companies. Plus, geeky science. School openings? Well, studies now show young kids could spread COVID-19 as easily as older children and adults. Tune into The Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are available. Robert in Kimberly, Oregon. Hey, Robert, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom. You asked about the future. That's not really my vision, but I think it's pretty close to coming true. Is it full self-driving? and autopilot cars and robo-taxis mm-hmm. might be a way for to eliminate a driver in the case of Uber, Lyft, traditional taxis. Mm. And do you know who's doing do you know who's doing it? Not who's who's doing not it. Not a customer, uh, Tesla. There are two oh, yeah. options that um, are over the air updates. And I don't have one. I wish I did. Mm-hmm. And maybe I will in the future, but Boy, are they doing some really neat stuff. And I think that's the future. I think you may be right, Robert, although I'm a little nervous about being on the freeway with cars that don't have a human being in them. Our, our uh, you know, biocomputers are just amazingly sophisticated. Every, to, every morning you know, I listen to a YouTube channel and the statistics of the cars with enhanced safety features from Tesla mm-hmm. and then the autopilot stats. And one is more in the stats were just off the chart, how much more safe they are than traditional human driven cars. Absolutely. And let's not forget, by the way, that Elon Musk started Tesla with money and technology provided by the federal government. This was this was part of a federal stimulus program and a federal anti-carbon pollution program. He used those grants and opportunities and options to start Tesla. And now he's turned into a right-wing Trump crank, but still, which is why now I would not buy a Tesla. But, you know, at one point, uh, we actually were on the list for the $30,000 Tesla, but uh, gave up. Anyhow, Robert, thank you for the call. Kevin in Harvard, Illinois. Hey, Kevin, what's up? Hey, Tom. I'm not talking about the future. I'm talking about the past. You're talking about your textbook of things that changed American history. And you kind of went from Mm -hmm. the cotton gin to the automobile and you you kind of skipped right over the first of two machines that were made correctly by the British, and the second, of course, was the Spitfire aircraft, which which saved the British themselves. But the first, of course, was the steam engine, which led to uh, trains and railroads. Oh, yeah. Right in the eighteen thirties. Kind of yeah, and you know, if you don't know the, the, the if you don't know the history or the development of the Spitfire, you should look into it because it was kind of a one man operation. And he was, uh, he actually had cancer or something. He was dying as he was making that airplane. And it huh. pretty much single-handedly saved the British. Wow. But the steam engine was amazing. Yeah, and, of course, you know, trains and railroads and everything. And, man, that, cha- that certainly changed America. Right. And these are all examples of where technology changed this country. I'm asking the question, how is the coronavirus going to change this country? We do have examples of, you know, massive infections changing society. The biggest one is the Renaissance coming about as a result of the bubonic plague killing a third of Europe. 
And that then elevated workers because suddenly there was a shortage of workers. So pay started going up and they started forming unions and people had spare time. And that led to literature and music and literally created the Renaissance. And then the Renaissance provided the foundation for the Enlightenment 200 years later, all driven by a disease. Kevin, thank you. That was an excellent one. I appreciate that. Jeff in Gurney, Illinois. Hey, Jeff, what's up? Hey, how you doing, Tom? Hey, you know what? There's no billionaires and there's no millionaires unless there's consumerism. So you can hand the money. Yes. The, federal, the federal government hands the money to United Airlines and to Boeing. And it's really just a patch. They want all those people back in the terminal. They want them going on vacation. And when you bring vacation into it, let's talk about Social Security and older people. You cut it all off. There's got to be an awful lot of consumerism in the retirement community of people going overseas, going on vacation, spending that money in their retirement years. So it kind of self, it covers itself. In other words, if you don't have people working and you don't have the money out there, well, how do the millionaires make all this money? They're not going to make it if everyone's sitting there on a poor line. Right. And the same goes for the airlines. Well, first of all, about a third of the just insanely rich people in the United States didn't work for their money. They inherited it. Like the entire Walton family, you know, the, that family collectively is the richest family on the planet. And they inherited it all from Sam. But yeah, and here's the dirty little secret. The Republicans don't care. They figure that, you know, there's always going to be people who are willing to work for really crappy wages. Those people will drive sort of an economy. They'll make things and, you know, whatnot. But as long as the billionaires have enough money, you know, more money than God, as long as they've got enough money that they don't ever have to worry about anything, you know, they don't care about the nuances of the economy or how many unemployed people there are. Billionaires are making massive amounts of money right now, and, and the right-wing billionaires in particular. I mean, there's, there's a few left-wing billionaires out there who are really extraordinarily good people. And, right, and you know, I tip my hat to them. And I know some of them, I know one in particular is supporting progressive causes, you know, a guy that I personally know. And, and it's just, it, you know, it, it's a good thing. But right. well, broadly speaking, up, the billionaire yeah. class is mostly these, you know, right-wing libertarians. Yeah, Jeff, I got to move along, but thank you. Haven't heard anybody call in to defend Stephen Moore and the Republican position on destroying Social Security. Usually we get at least a few. Anybody want to try? You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. But I'm getting some fascinating thoughts on how America, how the world, basically, is going to have to reinvent uh, society and commerce. Eric in Erie, Pennsylvania. Hey, Eric, thanks for watching Free Speech TV. What's up? Hey, good afternoon, Tom. I did have a defense for Stephen Moore for you. You had asked for that earlier. But the problem is it's a very, very strong plan, and we're going to be rolling it out in two weeks. And it's fantastic, but you'll see. There's things to come in two weeks. I'll tell you about this defense of Stephen Moore. It's fantastic. Okay. (laughs) Is that meant to be ironic, Eric? 
Well, I Because Donald Trump, you know, two weeks ago said he was going to roll out a health care plan for everybody and do it by executive order. And two weeks ago, he said he was going to solve the immigration crisis by executive order. I haven't seen there either. Although he did meet with John Yu at the White House day before yesterday, or yesterday, I guess. Uh, John Yu, the guy who wrote the op-ed, uh, he wrote the torture memo that justified George Bush and Dick Cheney's war crimes. And uh, he says, you know, Trump can do this stuff. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, and it's terrifying because we're finding out uh, there is some fiat power. Trump just lost yes. place whack-a-mole with these ideas, and luckily for us, there is congressional authority or other limitations, so he can't indulge his every psychotic whim, but some of them are getting scary. And the moment somebody tells him he can do it, bank on it, it'll be expedited. It's terrifying. yeah. yeah. Yeah, it was just like his yeah. taking the defensive budget and using it to build his wall down in, in Texas. Amazing. Yep. Eric, and thank you so- for the call. It's great to hear from you. James in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, James, what's up? Hi, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. Just wanted to make a quick comment on that early Stephen Moore interview that you did. And one thing mm-hmm. while you were grilling him, and I, I enjoyed the interview, but he said that on this payroll tax cut, that it can be replaced by government bonds. Now, Tom, I'm naive on government bonds, and I don't understand how government bonds would be worth anything right now the way the economy happens to be to begin with. I don't understand how that is warranted for being a payback in the Social Security after they think they're going to pass through. Hopefully it doesn't. A payroll tax cut when you got 25 million people on unemployment. Government bonds are borrowed money. When the government goes out into the marketplace and sells bonds, they're actually borrowing money from people. And so, you know, the government, you know, the national debt is also the national savings account. Individuals and companies want to save money, so they invest it in government bonds. Government provides them with a space to do that by having a national debt. A debt is a good thing. The one time that we paid off the national debt in the 1830s under the Andrew Jackson administration, we had the longest and deepest depression in the history of the United States. It lasted seven years until we generated enough debt that we had government bonds again that could be there for people. But basically what he was saying, James, what Stephen Moore was all about, was saying that we will replace the Social Security Trust Fund, which is you know a savings account dedicated to Social Security funded by the payroll tax, we will replace that with the general fund, with all the money that the government taxes and borrows. So in other words, we're going to turn Social Security into just another government welfare program. That's their goal. That's yeah. where he was going. Makes sense? I had a kind of figure okay. in that regard, Tom. Yeah, thank you for yeah. answering my question. Pleasure talking You're welcome. To you. Thanks for the call. Thank Bye. you, James. Great talking with you, too. I appreciate it. Vic in Livonia, Michigan. Hey, Vic, what's on your mind today? Hi, Tom. I'm just wondering if we could clarify something about this payroll tax cut. To my mm-hmm. knowledge, there are two payroll tax deductions. There is the federal income tax, and then there is FICA which involves 6.5% for Social Security and 4.5% for For Medicare. Medicare. Okay, if Trump and Stephen Moore and his Republican cronies want to do a payroll tax cut, will they take it out of the federal income tax? Yeah, Vic, you're breaking up. Unless both have to be included. Your comments, thanks. Yeah. On this program, Stephen Moore did not say we need to declare a moratorium on the Social Security dimension of that tax. He, he included Medicare in that, the entire FICA tax. 
And, and you're absolutely right. Medicare is a little less than 2% and Social Security is a little less than 7%, as I recall. And then, you know, the employer matches that on the other side. What Stephen Moore is proposing, number one, is a giant tax cut. I mean, what would end up being a multi-billion dollar, multi-hundred billion dollar tax cut for America's employers, number one. Number two, to the extent that it raises people's take-home pay, it does nothing for the unemployed, which is the crisis we're experiencing right now. Number three, if you want working people to make more money, give them pay raises, raise the minimum wage. And number four, by moving the income stream for Social Security and Medicare out of the FICA tax and into the general federal income tax, what you are doing is throwing it in with all other federal programs so that you can do exactly, I mean, the Republicans, you know, they leaned on Bill Clinton so heavily that he came out and said, okay, we're going to cut welfare. We're going to cut, you know, you can't be on these programs any longer than five years and we're going to end welfare as we know it. And he bragged about it and all this kind of stuff. This was all the result of these kinds of changes. They want to turn Social Security and Medicare into welfare programs so that they can cut and privatize them. It's That's the bottom line. Thank you for your call. Thanks so much for being with us today. What an amazing time we're living through. You know, you read about the plague in Europe and stuff, or you know, the flu pandemic. We are living through extraordinary times right now. Let's, let's appreciate it and also realize that, you know, we're not the only ones being stressed. Our neighbors, our friends, our spouses, our kids, our parents, reach out to people around you. You know, say something nice to somebody. Acknowledge them. Tag your it. See you tomorrow. Have a great day. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.